One thing that all craft distillers have in common, no matter what the spirit, is that they march to the beat of their own drum. But those who distill craft rum the hardcore way with molasses, now they seem to march to a beat that only they can hear. Today's guest is no exception to this rule. Hi, I'm Bella Mitrovich. And I'm Ross McPherson. Together, we're the hosts of the Distillers Journal podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Kit Carruffers, founder, distiller, and chief bottle washer at Scotland's Ninefold Distillery. To not give away too much in the introduction, we're going to jump right in. There are many folks who've entered the gin and now rum industry as a second career. They woke up one morning, looked in the mirror, and said to themselves, you should be distilling. But Kit, you've taken even a more different route. 18 years as an environmental geoscientist in Edinburgh, you completed a doctorate in 2016 in carbon storage and capture, and three years later, you're now making rum. What happened? Uh, That's a good question, (laughs) and one I ask myself every day, what happened? (laughs) Yeah, I finished my PhD, like I said, in 2016, doing carbon capture and storage. And I wasn't really sure what my next step was. I've never been very good at having a very fixed idea in my head of what I want my life to be like and where my career is going to be. I tend to jump from one thing to another uh, and have done pretty much all my life. So when I finished my PhD, I was looking to carry on with research, do a postdoctorate, or at least get a job that was vaguely related to what I was qualified in. But that was quite challenging at the time. There, there were a couple of jobs around that I applied for that I didn't get, and I hadn't written enough, or rather any, papers from my PhD to make me a, an attractive proposition to be taken on for postdoctorate. So yeah, my my options were were kind of limited. I was very very qualified, but not really much around that. At least I wanted to do. Plus, doing my PhD, I think I'd always known this, but I, I it cemented the fact that I didn't really want to work for people. That um, having setting my own schedule and you know doing things in my own time to the beat of my own drum kind of thing was more what I I suited me better uh, I'd, I'd i'd actually i'd, I'd become ill during a phd uh, with uh, crohn's disease and with that came challenges of yeah like being able to work <laughs> being able to go to work and things and it was far easier when you don't have a uh, a boss and employer that you have to justify to why you're not at work or why you haven't done something so i guess that's so yeah i guess i knew where that kind of pushed me down a road of setting up my own business. Into the mix then comes the fact that um, I, uh, my family own land in the south of Scotland, in Dumfries and Galloway, and my dad started talking about retirement. And I was looking at, yeah, so what, what do I do next? And eventually decided that, yep, yeah, I would uh, take on the inheritance of, of the family estate down here. Uh, and with that came yeah, a notion to set up 
my own business on the estate and really kind of put, put my own mark on, on the future of, of what's down here. So yeah, that's kind of how I got into, I could have been any business uh, really, but I was quite taken by the idea of the whole craft brewing, craft distilling industry and thought, yeah, maybe that'd be quite a cool thing to do. Uh, and this is with zero experience of it other than to, to drink it. There are some distillers who have had a bit of a background. For example, they were chemists before making the jump. Did you have any experience or ties to the industry? None at all. <laughs> I once, I want the only, uh, let's see, the only connection, which is so tenuous as to be pointless even mentioning it, but uh, years and years ago, my first full-time job I worked with a guy who was doing the brewing and distilling undergraduate course at Harriet Watt University at the Institute of Brewing and Distilling. But he was in like his second year and working full time and he was a total stoner and just, you know, he was basically on his way to being kicked out off that course. So that, that's my only link to the industry at that point. What many people down south don't realize is the importance of Scotland to the craft gin industry. Were you tempted to go with gin or even whiskey, or was it always going to be rum? Uh, yeah, so I had looked at, at gin as my first option because that's what I was surrounded with um, six years ago, where, where gin, gin brands and, and the whole strength of the market. However, just as I was finishing my PhD, I found out about uh, some guys who are buying, or family, who are buying a local property to turn into a gin distillery, uh, and that's only half a mile away from here on the estate. So that kind of partially knocked that on the head, but then also I thought, well, gin is it's such a saturated market even then that I thought maybe as a new brand I might struggle in, in that market, and I, so I wanted to do something different rather than rather than gin and be maybe uh, an early entrant into an emerging market where I'd be in a stronger position to, to really capitalize on a growth of that. So that's kind of really where the idea for rum came from. Whiskey, it was something I was never really a big, big fan of. And uh, besides you need mega deep pockets to, to set up a whiskey distillery, which we just didn't, don't have here. So rum, rum is great because if you're making it from scratch, it's the same philosophy as, as whiskey, completely, of, you know, you ferment, distill, age, all on site, all in Scotland. So there, there's a great appeal to that. But neither do you have to wait for it. You can, as soon as you made it, you can bottle it and sell it. So from a cash flow point of view, uh, it's it's great. So it seemed like a win-win a win -win, uh, from that, that point of view. So yeah, I, I considered, considered gin briefly, but ended up doing rum. Rum can be a breeze to make. You just buy in the rum and flavour it like many folks are doing. However, from the beginning, you decided to make it from scratch. This is a bit more complicated of an approach, but you must have had training, right? No, I, in doing a bit of kind of research on my way to setting the place up, uh, I visited some distilleries just to get a feel for kind of how they were run. But there was only really one place uh, making rum in... 2017, 2018, at least that was accessible to go and see how things were done. So that, that was quite enlightening, but I wouldn't say that was training. Uh, and then 
the uh, IBD at Harriet Watt University. They they were really good at giving me access to master's students to work on some projects for me. Um, so again, that kind of informed a little bit of the route I went down. But otherwise, it was really it's really just speaking to lots of people and trying to absorb as much knowledge from people who have experience as possible. Um, oh, I, and I did do I did do a, a craft distilling course. It was like two or three days long, um, but it didn't really, it wasn't practical at all. It was just all theoretical stuff. It didn't really help. <laughs> I didn't feel. So yeah, it was largely self-taught um, and, le- and leaning on people who already had experience. Let's go back to actual rum making for a moment. While there are numerous distilleries buying unaged rum, adding some spice and flavorings, redistilling it, and voila, rum, you're going with the more traditional route of buying cane molasses and distilling from scratch. This is a lot of work. It is a lot more work. It's a crazy amount of work, um, especially for a small distillery. However, the benefit of that is that you have, at least in theory, complete control over what you produce. You know, which is, which really, as a producer, you should have. You shouldn't be relying on the majority of your product being made by someone else. Um, at least, that's my philosophy. It makes it a more authentic product as well. Um, you know, I've I've had my hands on every stage of this, apart from the molasses production. So, in terms of the story that I can tell, the the knowledge I have of my product, the um, you know people people can ask me anything about how my rum is made, and I should be able to answer it. So that I think that lends a real authenticity to it, and of course I can control everything that I do here. Um, so if I want to go in one direction, I can. If I want to go in another direction, I can. Um, so I, I, so that, that's really important to me. I'd, I'd never hadn't even crossed my mind that I would buy in someone else's rum to redistill or flavor or do something else with. I hadn't even, <laughs> yeah, I hadn't, I, hadn't, I hadn't even considered that that was an option. It was always, I'm going to buy the molasses and I'm going to ferment and distill. That was always how it was going to be. You're located on an estate that your family has a long history with in a beautiful, beautiful place with Lockerbie being the nearest big village. Was it always your thought that this is where the distillery would be? Yes, totally. It was the plan to convert small buildings here that have been sitting unused for a long time uh, into something. It wasn't necessarily going to be a distillery, but I liked the idea of, of distilling here. So, yep, yeah, it probably would have been... We'd have saved probably two hundred thousand pounds if we'd gone and just rented an industrial unit anywhere. <laughs> um, and if I'd rented in the central belt somewhere, it'd have been far easier to have got staff or access to all the business that goes on up there. Um, whereas rurally in Dufferin Galloway, converting a slightly tumble-down old stone steading building is not the most cash-efficient way of setting up a business, but um, but this this is mine. I, I own this, so no one's kicking me out uh, of, of here. So, yeah, and, and it, you're right. It is, it is a beautiful place. I'm currently listening to Swallows 
flying around and doing their thing outside and it's yeah it's, it's a nice place to to be you started in 2019 and three years later you're expanding was it a mistake in 2019 not dreaming bigger and going with a larger installation then yes but <laughs> hindsight's a wonderful thing right sure i i should have i, I know now that i should have bought bigger still um, I think when you're putting a significant amount of ca capital into a project, it can be quite difficult to see where the future is and, and what, what is worth spending money on, what isn't. And at the time, you know, my, my still was expensive. I, 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 again, I bought basically the most expensive option possible out of all the kind of stills I could have gone, gone for. Um, so rather than off the shelf still, uh, like an ice still um, or a cheap Portuguese, you know, copper embellic. You know, I went for a Scottish built kind of bespoke uh, copper still. So with that came a hefty price tag and to have gone bigger. So I have a 500 liter copper pot here with a four plate rectifying column. If I'd gone up to a thousand liter version of that, it would have not quite doubled the price, but near enough and at that time we just went no we don't have that that money at the moment so we can't justify that that spend however now yes i wish we'd done that because now i'm looking at basically having to buy a second still and and on top of what i've already got and to buy a second still yeah is is a very significant investment if i want to do it the same way as the way i'm doing it here tell me about your supply issue problems of the last year with bottles and the solution you came up with. Yes, bottles were uh, definitely uh, a, a problem for me. Um, not unique to the industry at all. Um, everyone's feeling uh, the difficulties in getting a hold of bottle stock to, to put their product in. Uh, but for me, I started in 2020 actually trying to get new bottles. I bought enough, I think in 2018, uh, to get me started uh, and just assumed that I'd be able to go back to my original bottle manufacturer to get bottles, I think like most people do. Um, so in the absence of being told that they're no longer available, then, yep, you just go back and say, I want to order another 5,000 bottles, please. At which point I was told, no, you can't. <laughs> and then they said, then they said, oh, yes, you can. And then they said, oh, but it'll be this amount of money. And then anyway, I could tell that they really just didn't want to deal with me uh, at all. So about six months of that, I finally decided just to commit to, I could have gone with another off-the-shelf bottle, but I could have ended up with the same problems of having a maybe a popular bottle that I was struggling to get a hold of. I was starting to hear as well as with the grapevine, people having problems getting off-the-shelf stuff. You know, catalog bottles uh, were taking really long time to, to come or they're only getting partial deliveries and things. So I committed to a full custom bottle, so going the bespoke route, which when you're two years into a business is not ideal. It's the kind of thing that you want to either just launch with or you invest in, you know, much further down the line when you're a much bigger company and you've got that kind of cash behind you. So... But I figured that this would 
hopefully solve some of these problems. I'd have, have my own bottle. I'd get a large quantity uh, to, to keep me going for, for years. Um, and yeah, and, and then I, I have a strong brand already in terms of the, you know, the, the logo and the, the branding and stuff and the existing bottle looked already great. So it was a, an, an evolution of that, but quite a, quite a big evolution actually in the end. Uh, and they have now arrived, uh, literally on Friday. They actually today they showed up. Um, I got partial delivery on Friday and the remaining delivery today. So I've now got enough bottles to do me for uh, probably three years, <laughs> I think. So ho hopefully by, by that point, things will have settled down a little in supply chain. I bought them from Vetro Elite. Or I say bought them, uh, Vetro Elite made them for me. Um, so we went through yeah, mold development and uh, production through Vetro. And I had a, uh, I've got a fantastic designer called Ed Bell, uh, who yeah, did, did the bottle design. Uh, for me, so yeah, yeah, they did. They did a really, really good job. Really good job. Let's talk about your rather distinct and slightly different logo. It is a six-winged angel called a seraphim, and it is my family crest. So, as a Carruthers, uh, if I were to have a coat of arms, uh, my dad has a coat of arms. Uh, I, I could apply for a coat of arms myself. At the top of the coat of arms would sit, uh, yeah, would sit sit the crest, and the crest is an animal or a thing that's um, unique to a family name. And for the Carruthers, it's this seraphim. So that so that's where that the the that, um, kind of the logo came from. And then ninefold just comes from that six winged angel uh, under medieval angelology would sit in the the ninth fold the ninth level in that kind of angel hierarchy which which kind of makes me sound like i'm a i'm a god brother but i'm not <laughs> it's just uh it's just fam family related can you take us through your rum making process i buy in sugarcane molasses which comes from um it's mostly north african it's mostly algerian i believe it's a it's a blend of molasses uh, so, uh, being completely upfront, I don't know entirely where it all comes from, and I suspect neither does my supplier. Uh, I think they they have a list of, play of possible, you know, supplying countries to them, but what exactly goes into the blend, I think they don't, or at least they won't tell me. So, <laughs> it's not ideal. But that that molasses, I mix with uh, warm water in a single fermentation tank that I've got. It's one and a half thousand liters. And I add two commercial yeasts to that, uh, plus some nutrients. And I'm fermenting for about four days. At the end of the four days, I'm left with a fermented wash that's between nine and 10%. Uh, it's not often I get to 10%, but it's usually around nine to nine and a half. Uh, I then, uh, my fermenter's 1500 liters and my pot, as I said earlier, is only 500. So I have to do uh, batches of uh, stripping runs, uh, of, of wash runs. Um, so I was doing one today and I'll be doing one this afternoon. So I've taken just 500 liters out, out of the fermenter and uh, distilling, uh, just stripping the alcohol out. 
the low winds produced from that stripping run, uh, those stripping runs um, combined go back into the pot and I do a spirit run. On the spirit run, I use the little four plate rectifier that I have and I produce a 90% strength run uh, off, the, off the little column. So that, that whole process of just about four days of fermenting, usually about three days of distilling. So about a week start to finish before I'm left with a, a tank of about 100 litres of 90% rum. I then uh, cut that down with uh, filtered tap water to whatever ABV that I need to get to, depending on what I'm, I'm doing with it. Uh, but that's usually like 10% ABV steps uh, every day just to just to take, take it easy on, on the ABV reduction uh, to try and retain as much of the character and flavor of the rum as I can. So uh, I reduced down to 46% for my unaged rum, pure single rum. I go down to about 40% to make my spiced rum. And uh, for caskings, usually around 63.5%. Um, but I need to put some stuff away uh, that's at around 60% just to uh, try out slightly lower ABV. Um, but yeah, that's generally generally what, what I'm doing. So that, that ABV reduction is another three, four, five days, depending on where I'm taking it to. For barrel aging, you're using oak. Nothing different there, but with some of the oak barrels, you failed the oak yourself. And you're also using beech. Yeah, I uh, most of my most of my casks are, are oak. Um, I have a, a mixture of virgin American oak and ex-bourbon of, of various varieties. I've done some finishes, and actually I'm doing some full maturation in some uh, Oloroso ex-Speyside um, octaves, uh, small quarter casks. Uh, but yes, just recently, uh, I had some barrels made. Uh, I had nine standard barrels made using oak from the estate, from Dormant Estate here. So that was oak that was felled four years ago. I'd like to say that I felled those, those trees myself. That would make a great story. I, I helped. I've got, uh, I've got some GoPro footage of me uh, helping fell, <laughs> fell one, of the, one of the oak. Because um, I, do, I do have my uh, chainsaw training. So weirdly, I've got chainsaw training, but I've got no distilling training. So uh, arguably, they're more qualified to cut down trees than make rum. Um, so yeah, we felled some oak back in 2018, uh, which was milled that year and dried here on the estate uh, for four years. And then just recently had those coopered, had that coopered into, uh, into standard barrels. So uh, as far as I know, uh, they're, they're not the first Scottish oak barrels to be made. Uh, I know that the, um, a couple of whiskey barrels were made from Scotch oak, um, but certainly no one's done rum in them. And I don't think anyone's done as many of these as, as I've had done. So it's the, the, the rum that's going to come out of them will be unique. But yeah, we also had some beach as well, that a, a um, beach had been blown down and we had enough to get coopered into two 100 litre casks. Um, something that's never been done before. The coopers had never worked with beach. So it was a bit of a, it's a bit of an experiment, really. I've got no idea what the liquid's going to be like that's going to come out of them. Are you looking at making some small batches and blends with these barrels and see what's drinkable and what's not? Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's the intention. So the the beach uh, themselves, you know, because they're they're just hundred liter uh, casks. 
So we'll probably end up combining those into a, into a single release at some point. Whether they need something else done to them, <laughs> whether they need a finish or not, eventually, I, I don't know. Um, the, the, the new um, dormant oak casks, <sighs> I'm actually using them as, I, I've had a standard recipe. I did some experimental, um, I did all my experimentation right back at the start of setting the place up. And that was 10 to 12 experimental batches. And all those rums ended up filling my first five barrels. And that, and I've released, um, some of that so far as like single cask releases. But since then, I've done no real experimentation. I've kind of tweaked my, my process, tweaked the recipe a bit, but not fundamentally kind of changed it up. Um, but now that I've got these unique casks, these unique barrels, I wanted to play, start playing around again with the rums that went into them so that, because I've got like eight, eight of them are, have a medium toast, but they're basically all the same barrel. So I didn't just want to put my same recipe of rum into eight barrels and they're all basically the same. So I decided that, um, each, each one or, or a couple at a time would have some experimental rums in them again. So I've started doing stuff that I've been meaning to do for the last two or three years, which is to try some different yeasts, um, look at, um, backset, dunder and muck, um, in, in my process. Just, it, it gives me, it, it basically gives me the excuse to play around a bit more with, with what I make and see what works and what doesn't. Um, and all of that can just go away into, in the casks, um, for the future and just see, see what they do. I may then take those casks and then they'll all individually go off and do a, a finish, you know, looking at, you know, port or brandy or sherry or Calvados or ex bourbon or whatever. Um, and, you know, at some point re rack them into, into other things. So there's, there's lo loads of options there. And yeah, they'll all be, you know, their own release, uh, limited release. But in, in addition to all that, I'm trying to put away rums for like a standard kind of core aged product. So that it's something that's some standard recipe should always be available. Um, you know, it's, it's more approachable in terms of price and, and, and things. Uh, and then in, in addition to that, we can do the more limited, uh, experimental stuff. Can you describe your three main brands? I produce an unaged, what I call pure single rum. So a pot distilled, single distillery rum. So that's bottled at 46%. It's had no sugar added to it, no added flavor, no aging, and then had the color stripped out. So it's a uh, it's totally clear, uh, crystal clear liquid. It's got notes of um, kind of banana, kind of a grassy freshness on the nose. Um, there's like kind of toffee and uh, the molasses in there. And there's a kind of peppery uh, finish to it. Um, so that, that was the product that I launched with three years ago, albeit at 40% and I've only just bumped it up to 46% uh, just recently with the new bottle. Last year I released Dormant Spiced, as uh, is my spiced rum, my, my take on a spiced rum. Uh, it takes the, the pure single rum and to that I add um, natural liquid extracts of nutmeg, allspice, aniseed. So those are just the three spices that go into it, along with a little sugar, um, 15 grams a litre of sugar, so just a, a small amount, 
and there's a little uh, caramel color in there just to give it give it some color because it is unaged and I'm not um, macerating uh, whole spices to, to bring out the, the color. So again, that's the, the, the base notes of the rum that I, I, the philosophy point behind the spice drum was to let the rum do a lot of the talking. I didn't want to overwhelm it with spice and sugar because that's what a lot of commercial rums do. And you basically just don't taste the rum underneath. You might as well just flavor vodka in that case. Uh, for me, I put all the effort into making my rum. So the spices are more just a, they're there to complement the rum rather than overwhelm it. And the sugar is there to kind of round everything out and sort of tie it together a bit rather than to be overly sweet. And then I have just launched at the weekend. Um, so two days ago, three days ago now, and another pure single rum, but this is cask aged. So this particular batch uh, has had two Virgin American Oak barrels contribute to the batch. One that, that was about a year and a half old and one that about two years old. And that has like a whole load of sweetness on the nose. Um, it's got like real butterscotch notes. Again, there's a banana note in there along with all the kind of dark fruits and a bit of dark chocolate and things as well. And then that kind of peppery uh, finish is, is still still there. What sells best? Spice? Well, <laughs> that, that's a good question. Up until the cask release, up, sorry, up until the, the new uh, cask age pure single rum came out at the weekend, then it was my, my spice rum. Although, interestingly, if I went to a market or through shops, the spice drum outsold the unaged pure single rum by like three or four to one. But people coming direct to my website, it's a more even split between, between the two. Um, I think, I guess, because people have had my pure single rum before and they come back to me to buy, uh, to buy more. But now having released the cask age pure single rum, that was my, uh, I launched it at, a, at an event over the weekend, two-day event at the Galloway Country Fair. And yeah, the aged rum outsold my spice rum. So, which I'm not sure if I expected that or not, but it's nice that it did. You know, that, that's quite, quite pleasing to me. I mean, it's not cheap. It's what, 60 pounds a bottle? The single cask rums I've done before, the, the limited edition where there's, you know, X number of bottles available, then yes, there is um, that. The last one of those I did was 60 pounds a bottle uh, for a cask strength limited edition um, Scottish rum at, at about two years old. The, the new cask aged pure single rum uh, will sell for, is selling for 43 pounds. So it's not cheap, um, but I think there's great value in there uh, in terms of the, the provenance, the quality, uh, the flavor. Um, and certainly at the weekend, people had no problem spending that kind of money on it, uh, which was even more pleasing. <laughs> A problem all distillers have is marketing their brand. This is amplified a zillion times for small craft. How are you marketing Ninefold? I market largely through social media, um, through, a, through a mailing list, and it's being marketed as, yeah, as a, I don't market as a, as a 100% Scottish made rum, because I feel that the, the percentage that's missing is the raw material. You know, the sugar cane has to come from, has to come from abroad. Otherwise it would be 100% Scottish, but beyond the production of the raw material, 
everything else is done here. So fermentation, distillation, aging, flavoring, bottling, labeling, all, all done on site. So it's, you know, it's an, it's an artisanal, uh, small batch, craft, whatever buzzword you want to use for, uh, for, for a tiny little outfit, um, kind of one-man bands kind of thing. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a premium product in, in the truest sense of the word. You know, it's, it's limited, um, it's high quality, uh, I'm involved in every, every part of it. So, so yeah, um, largely it's just it's the cheapest way I can market it, which is largely through social media. I try and go and do tasting events where, where I can. Um, it's the, the best way of selling something and marketing something is to meet new consumers. Uh, that, that's why I find when, when people come up to a stall, they come and chat to you. I think the default is they just assume that you're a you're a rep. Um, you're just there just to you know hawk some product on on behalf of your employer or part of a portfolio or something. And when you go, you know, I I, I make this rum, and quite a lot of people genuinely go, oh, you make it, and they go, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I think from so they can I think they get a real connection with with the brand at that point, and they get a real like, oh, okay, this is the guy that makes one makes one drinking and I think that's really really powerful uh, in terms of yeah trying trying to sell sell something which is maybe not at the forefront of most people's um, spirit experience you know particularly in Scotland they're used to gins and whiskies rum Scottish rum is is a new thing uh, to, to most people uh, and so inevitably people might be a little skeptical about it they assume rum has to be a Caribbean product but if you can engage with people and, and retell them that this this is how I make it and this is how this is the process and, and things, I think they 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 buy, they buy into it in the same way they bought into uh, gins and whiskies. Do you see Christmas as being the big target for sales? With the months leading up to Christmas, as to when you move the most rum. So my experience of the three Christmases that I've traded is that I I tend not to see a big uplift. Certainly not. Not in December. I do in like October, October, November. Even last month in July, I had someone mention Christmas presents. I'm like, please don't. <laughs> we haven't even had a summer yet. So, yeah, it's difficult for me to gauge. I, I find um, like spring and summer months are really good for me. The kind of the awesome months and the lead up to Christmas, yeah, can can be quite good. Uh, but I don't I don't see this like crazy uplift. That I think um, a lot of certainly gin producers do. Um, I think rum is maybe not seen as giftable in the same way that gin is. I think gin is seen as a safe bet. You know um, that you, you go buy a bottle of gin, or uh, a lot of the a lot of a lot of the industry is set up with like gift packs. You know, gifting with it in mind, and that's something I haven't really got around to to be able to offer something like that. I've had to kind of. I'm going to use the word cobble. <laughs> I'm going to cobble together things. Uh, I was going to say it sounds very amateur. I guess I'm amateur in that, that respect. It's something that, it's a bit of an afterthought by the time I get around to there. Um, whereas this year, I am trying to work on a gift pack. So you can buy a bottle with a couple of glasses and that should be ready in October. So people looking at gifting, um, there'll be something from Ninefold available specifically for that. How that will sell, I, I've no idea. We'll, we'll have to, we'll have to see. But for for me, the the summer months are my 
are my busiest at, at the moment. We've talked about your successes. What do you see as your coming challenges? <sighs> Cost of energy is is the main one for me. Um, obviously, we're, we're all aware in the UK of how expensive gas and electricity uh, is already and is going to become. My I run on electricity here. I've got a, an electric boiler that raises steam to um, to boil my still. And at the moment, my electricity costs are fixed until January, end of January. Uh, but at that point, they will triple or quadruple in price. And that will add about a pound onto the cost of every bottle I make. So um, about seven or eight percent, it'll add onto the cost of production for me, um, which is quite quite a big uplift. So. That, that's a big challenge. Um, also, just consumer spending. I don't think anyone really knows whether people are going to have the money to spend on, you know, luxuries like a, you know, pre- premium spirit. So there's, there's an uncertainty there as to, like, how much are we actually going to sell? About, you know, whether people are going to have the money to, to spend on it. So, yeah, the, the next twelve months and longer are, are potentially going to be quite challenging in terms of how much we can actually sell and how much it's going to cost to, to produce. In Scotland, there's a small hardcore group of Scottish rum producers who all come with the same philosophy of making rum from scratch, that fermenting, distilling and aging all has to be done in Scotland. I'm sure if the weather was a bit more forgiving, this group would insist too that the sugar cane used would have to be grown in Scotland as well. To take a stand on what they see as proper credibility and reputation, they would like to see a standard created. So if you slap Scottish rum on the bottle, a consumer will know that the rum was produced from scratch, entirely in Scotland, and to certain standards. That sounds good, but as Kip pointed out to me, because Scottish rum distillers are all one or two person operations and all have their own way of doing things, remember the drum beat I mentioned in the beginning. This hasn't happened. Scottish products such as smoked salmon, whiskey, or shortbread biscuits all come with a notion of quality. If not, there would not be so many fake Scottish products out there. For Scottish rum to pull this off, they're going to need somebody with the belief and time to champion this idea. At Distillers, we'd like to see this happen. The Distillers Journal Podcast production, Review Media, produced and hosted by Velo Mitrovic and Ross McPherson. Script and direction is by Velo Mitrovic. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young with executive producer Rory Harris. We'd like to give a special thanks to Kit Carruthers of Scotland's Ninefold Distillery, our sponsors, and most of all to you for listening to Padres. Have a good one. <laughs>